What's up, everybody? This is Cortland from IndieHackers.com, and you're listening to the Indie Hackers Podcast. On this show, I talk to the founders of profitable internet businesses, and I try to get a sense of what it's like to be in their shoes. How did they get to where they are today? How did they make decisions, both at their companies and in their personal lives? And what exactly makes their businesses tick? And the goal here, as always, is so that the rest of us can learn from their examples and go on to build our own profitable internet businesses. Today, I'm talking to Ryan Bourne of Cloud Campaign. Ryan, welcome to the show. Hey, Cortland. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for, for being here. Super excited to have you here. You are kind of my favorite type of guest to interview because I've seen you grow up on Andy Hackers. Two years ago, you were on the forum. You were emailing me with ideas. You're excited to get started on something. You're making approximately $0 <laughs> a month in revenue <laughs> back then. Uh, what's your revenue at now? Yeah, so we actually just crossed 25K MRR, which we're super excited about and growing by about 32% month over month. 32%, that's crazy. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's been a really exciting journey with uh, you know most of our growth coming in the past few months here. How does it feel to go from being like sort of a fledgling indie hacker to being someone who's actually doing it? Because I know in those early stages, it can kind of just feel like a dream. But one day I'll have these kind of revenue numbers and one day I'll work for myself, but now you're, you're actually here. Yeah, it's super interesting. I think it feels fragile at times. You know, like I feel like we've accomplished a lot. And looking back to two and a half years ago when I first started the company, it feels like we've done so much. But at the same time, it feels like it could go away at any point. Hopefully that's not the yeah. case. But honestly, that's how it feels. Yeah, the, the typical founder anxiety can all come crashing down. Yeah, you think of every worst case scenario and, you know, not the not what hopefully is actually going to happen, which is you keep growing at the same pace. I very rarely encounter founders who actually have that kind of worst case scenario thing happen where overnight their business is dead. But I so often encounter founders who have that that fear and that belief that it can happen. It seems like it never goes away. I listen to How I Built This, the podcast of the NPR, and even folks that are interviewed on there that are, you know, valued at billion dollars. It seems like they still have that same fear. Totally. Stripe has like a, a list of doomsday scenarios. You know, what are what are the things the CEO is worried about? And those are very real threats that can really tank and kill any business. I mean, you see it happen with these huge unicorn startups all the time. You know, WeWork was going to IPO <laughs> a few months ago. Now yeah. they're like worth very little money and trying to scramble and save the company. So it's real. But at the same time, I think if you're building, especially sort of a bootstrapped indie hacker business off the back of hundreds or thousands of paying customers and you've sort of grown at a healthy clip, which you've done, that's a little bit of security, a little bit of insurance where you know you've built on the back of something real and it's not just you know inflated valuations and, and fake numbers. I think so too. And I think it's something that we're trying to be pretty deliberate about in terms of building a business that is being funded by our customers. And I think just for full transparency, we're, we're actually in the process of raising a seed round right now, which isn't very typical for indie hackers, but we see it as kind of augmenting our growth. But at the end of the day, we're still trying to fuel our salaries and fuel the business based off our customers and our revenue. Cool. So I want to talk about how you got here because you first popped onto my radar way back in like early 2017 when you were on yep. Indie Hackers Forum and in my inbox. But I don't really know much about what you're up to before that point in time. So what were some of the most important events that led to you becoming a founder and wanting to be an indie hacker? Super fortunate path. I graduated college in 2014 and studied computer engineering at that point. I joined an early stage startup. We were Series A funded, 14 employees, and just got to see firsthand that whole experience of growing the company and getting to go in you know, every day and make a pretty significant difference. 
And I think that was really exciting for me. I was super fortunate to go through an acquisition there, joined the acquiring company, which had about 2,500 employees, stayed there for two years. And at that point, we took the company public. Uh, so I think it was just very serendipitous. And wow. I was so fortunate to be able to join the company at that stage and have that experience. And I think that's what really opened me up to entrepreneurship and wanting to start my own company afterwards. Yeah, you kind of saw every stage of success from being a tiny NASA company to being acquired to IPOing. Do you think that everything going so well there is kind of what inspires you to do your own thing? And maybe, you know, things had crashed and burned more like a typical <laughs> startup that you wouldn't have done it? It's a big part of it for sure. Just instilling confidence in myself to do it. But also financially, you know, anytime you go through an exit, obviously it, it's a good financial situation for yourself. And so that helped having a bit of savings and cushion to yeah. then take the leap to then start my own company. I think another thing to note too is both my parents are entrepreneurial. So having that background and seeing that growing up and seeing that you can actually build like a good business where you kind of set your own hours and whatever else was pretty inspiring. Yeah, I think a lot about inspiration because that's kind of the chief goal of indie hackers to get people to want to start more companies and, and tell people that they can do it. And so much of it just comes down to seeing relatable examples of people doing it and sort of demystifying it. So it's not just these you know mysterious figures on TV and in books, but it's actually people that you know and you can think this person isn't that different from me. You know, I could have done it. So having parents who are founders or being part of a company that succeeds and talking to those founders is super inspiring. What was the first thing that you did to start down this path of being a founder after the acquisition happened and after the IPO? Yeah, so first step was really just kind of creating side projects that I was really interested in. Never really, I mean, I knew I wanted to start a company. I just didn't know which project was going to turn into a company, which I think is almost a good way of doing it because it's kind of low stress and it doesn't have to necessarily work out. You don't need it to be a huge success from day one. And so I actually launched a few different projects while still working at that company, uh, the, the acquiring company. I think it's also a good test to then see like when you actually do get some sort of traction, you have something to compare it against. You know, Project C got a ton of users on day one. That's something I haven't seen before with Project A and B. Maybe it's actually worth pursuing this with a bit more time and a bit more effort. And so that was kind of the st first step was just building these projects on nights and weekends. My favorite approach to getting started is kind of the scattershot shotgun approach. Do lots of different things. Don't go all in on your first project on day one and think it has to be perfect because then you don't get that perspective of seeing the differences between different projects. And I think there's a lot of value in just starting over from scratch and sort of doing that whole beginning process again because then you get to see what you did last time, what didn't work, and, and how to refine it. Uh, when you're going through this process of starting projects, were you that deliberate and that conscious of having a strategy and how it was going to work in the long term? Or were you just sort of following your passion and, and seeing what happened? Initially, it was just following my passion and seeing what would happen. So initially, it was kind of scratching my own itch, products that I wanted to exist in the market but didn't. It's funny, actually. So one of the first projects I was working on was called IPNO. It was like an IPO notification service that would send you an email anytime a company filed to go, to go public. And I posted it on Indie Hackers. And this was like, early 2017. And I remember you actually reached out to me, I think on the forum and gave me feedback. And you're like, well, why does anyone care about this? Why does someone want to buy this? Like, what's the value that they're getting out of it? <laughs> I was like, I don't know. It's, it's something I want. So I built it. I'm not sure what the value is. And I think that's a great lesson, though, is like, if you expect people to pay for it, they have to begin value out of it and actually has to solve some sort of problem. It's cool that you're so forward about sharing what you were doing. You weren't just sort of building in isolation. You decided to come on Indie Hackers and share your ideas with people, which led to you actually getting valuable feedback and learning a little bit more than you would have if you just did it in isolation. 
what do you think were some of the more valuable lessons that you learned from that early phase of just trying lots of different ideas? So I think from the early days, things that I learned were really pitching the value. So just kind of around messaging. And I think it's something I'm still learning today. But, you know, you're not if you just tell someone what the product is, no one's going to buy it. They're not interested in the product. They're interested in the sizzle, right? Like You don't sell raw meat. You sell the burger that someone's going to eat. And so I think that was one big thing that I learned in the early days is what what's the value that you're selling? And the whole pitch needs to be around that whenever you're talking to a customer. So your background is in software engineering, right? Yep, that's correct. Yeah, this is not something they teach you in your, your, your computer science classes. This is not something you learn <laughs> on the job when you're writing code. You're very... No product focus, you're building features, it's all very concrete. And then when you start to wear the hats that a founder has to wear, you're doing marketing and sales, suddenly it's all about how do you communicate with people and like how do you transfer a message and a vision that you have in your head into their head? And how do you even predict whether or not that's going to resonate and that that's something that they want? Yeah, marketing's tough. I think I actually gained a lot of respect for some of these other job functions through starting a company because I just never really realized how difficult and how hard it was to actually measure the success of these different roles. And to your point, you're 100% right in that in engineering, you're taught to actually remove all the fluff and like be very direct and say, you know, this is a table, not like this is a <laughs> gathering spot where you eat dinner with your friends. Like it's just a different way of approaching it. Yeah. I think another thing about being an engineer, especially in a high tech startup, is you sort of end up being prized above the other roles. People exalt engineering. It's all about the programmers, they have the highest salaries, they're what makes Silicon Valley work. And I really bought into this for a long time. Uh, and then coming to the other side of things, I realized that a lot of companies say this because it helps them hire engineers. It's very difficult to hire engineers, and so you really need to do that. But the other functions at a company are just as important, if not more important. Like What the marketing department does to actually get the product in customers' hands is extremely crucial. And it's easy to lose sight of that as a founder and sort of say, well, as long as I build a good product, that's all that matters. And all this marketing and sales stuff is just BS. Yeah, no, it's so true. And ultimately, like the only reason you're working on the product is to generate more sales, right? Like if the product's selling and selling like hotcakes, then don't focus any more effort on engineering. Just keep selling it until it gets to the point where it's not selling anymore and then start working on the product again. And I guess like anecdotally within our company, I'm actually the only engineer working on the product today. Everyone that we've hired has been within sales because the product sells fine. It's you know, good. It's relatively good compared to the rest of the products on the market, and so we just focus all of our effort and our revenue on growing sales. So, tell me a little bit about your product and your team. You're doing 25k a month in revenue. What is Cloud Campaign exactly, and how many people are working on it alongside you? Cloud Campaign is a digital platform that helps marketing agencies scale social media management. So, to kind of give you an idea, most of the big brands that you're familiar with today actually. of enterprises actually hire a marketing agency or freelancer to then manage their social media. And we're building the product that allows these marketing agencies and freelancers to manage social media at scale. So just making them more efficient, really focused on both the front of the house and back of the house. So making them look a lot better and have a white-labeled product that they can present to their clients, but also making them more efficient so the account managers in some situations can even double the number of brands they manage. Um, which obviously affects the bottom line of the business. And it's a pretty compelling story when it comes to actually selling these marketing agencies on our product. It's funny because this pitch that you're giving right now is so different than the way you <laughs> described Cloud Campaign to me over email like two years ago. Back then when you had the initial idea, it was nothing like that. You were reaching out to founders, or at least me, trying to get us to use Cloud Campaign. 
and you're basically saying, hey, this is a way to automate all of your social media. This is you know, the best way. You use this instead of Buffer. You use this instead of Meet Edgar, et cetera. How did you come up with the initial idea back then? Yeah, so it was, it was a different product at that time. And we've since then pivoted. The thought was, it was really, it was a race to the bottom, if I'm being completely honest. We're like, oh, we can build a better mousetrap and we can sell it for $5 rather than $40 or whatever it was. And yeah, so what we realized is, you know, no, no one really wanted to pay for it. There were enough solutions out there today that had respected brand value and they, they were name brands that people were familiar with. And so we had a really hard time breaking into the market, even at a lower price point. And my thought was, okay, like let's let's take a step back and let's actually do some customer research, which is something I didn't do from day one. I think that was my biggest regret was just building the product once I had some people expressing interest in it and not actually talking to those folks and saying, Hey, like, what do you what are you hoping to get out of this product? I'm just like, oh, they said they're interested. They saw my landing page. All right, let's build it. <laughs> <laughs> the engineering mindset. And so uh, yeah, I started reaching out to some friends that worked at some larger enterprises that were in the marketing space and pretty much asked them, like, hey, what would it take to get you to use my product? And they're like, oh, this looks awesome, but you know, we, we outsource. We hire a marketing agency that actually does our social media. And that was kind of the light bulb moment. It's like, okay, if we sell one marketing agency that opens the door for maybe 30 enterprises, that's, that's the route that we want to go and really pivoted. And that's about six months into being full-time on the product. So I want to re- rewind a little bit and talk about some of the logistics behind going from being a full-time employee to being a full-time ND hacker. At some point, I assume you left your job. How did, how did that happen exactly? Yeah, left is a nice way of putting it. Um, they actually shut down our entire office, so I, technically I got fired. We, we were kind of operating as a satellite office at that point. This was about two and a half years after we got acquired. And they decided that they were going to move our product up to a different office in Vancouver. And they pretty much gave us the option to either move to Vancouver or quit or get fired, essentially, which was a blessing in disguise. This was actually the day after I launched the website for Cloud Campaign. And it's a pretty funny story. So I show up to work and it's pretty abnormal for HR to actually be in our office just the way we operated. And HR is in our office. They call everyone to an all hands meeting in the conference room go in there and I had a feeling this was coming and sure enough they're like hey guys like you know we're super impressed by everything you've done but at this point we're moving the product to this other office and yada 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 meanwhile my phone is just going crazy because I had set up email notifications every single time a new customer or not a customer at that point but someone expressed interest in the product signed up and so I keep just getting all these notifications on my phone. I was like, what? What's going on? I like slowly pulled out underneath the table and I see it's like, oh, this person's interested. This person's interested. This person. I was like, all right. <laughs> maybe like maybe this is what I needed. Like this is the the push to go full time on it. You know, I was like, all right, I'm I'm off payroll in a couple months. We had a couple months to move the product over. And uh at that point it was just working tirelessly nights and weekends to get something, you know, demonstrable and MVP out there that we can actually start selling. And yeah, I mean, that was, that was really the first step was actually getting fired. It's still a pretty big leap to go from working full time for another company and, and having a cushy salary and, you know, knowing there's going to be a paycheck every couple of weeks to suddenly being on your own. And I guess you had savings, right? Because your company had IPO'd and you've mm-hmm. done a little well. But at the same time, now your savings, instead of being, you know, increasing, they are now dwindling <laughs> every month. How did you, how did you plan for, for having a runway psychologically and, and just financially? Yeah, I think a big thing was just step one, figuring out how much money I had in different, you know, stocks and savings accounts and whatever else. And like 
mapping out where that could potentially get me. I think my estimate was off pretty significantly, but you know, I was like, all right, these are like my, you know, I have a car payment, I have rent, I have, you know, whatever else. Like these are my, my must haves that I need the money for to pay each month. And then I can probably reduce my variables quite a bit if I eat in and don't get coffee and mm-hmm. whatever else. And so just essentially step one was mapping out where I could get to with my savings. But then the next step was actually figuring out you know, how I'm going to afford everything else. So obviously there's a lot of benefits that come with working for an employer like healthcare and like you mentioned, payroll and whatever else. And so step one was figuring out all those different logistics. And so I think this is something that a lot of folks struggle with making that transition. And what I ended up doing just because at that point I didn't have payroll anymore. Um, I went on to cover California, which is like Medicare, right? It's for, uh, for low income people to like get government funded uh, healthcare. So I moved on to that. Um, first step then was to actually get the company off the ground and make it like legal was going through Stripe Atlas. They had just launched at the time. It's like 500 bucks. You can incorporate your company. Um, they connected me with a lawyer to then actually go and do all the legal docs. And so that was kind of the first step was just getting all the ducks in a row and making sure everything was legal and I could move forward with it at that point. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. A lot of people struggle with these early decisions. And I think it's easy to not get started because it sounds so overwhelming. But the fact that people like you figured it out, you've shared your story, the fact that things like Stripe Atlas exist to make it significantly easier to get started uh, with at least sort of the boring business healthcare side of things. Yep. Uh, the rest of it's still pretty confusing. You know, what kind of ideas should you work on? Uh, how do you get your architecture set up for your code? You know, what are the first things you're going to do? How are you going to find customers? Did you have a plan for all that sort of stuff when you started Cloud Campaign? The nice thing is I feel like the day and age that we live in, there's lots of different resources that didn't exist 10, 20 years ago. And so, you know, for getting feedback initially, I actually leaned on the indie hacker community quite a bit. At that point, I think it was a bit smaller than it is today. But, you know, folks were super, super helpful in giving me feedback on the website and the product and why it would even matter. And so that's where I got initial feedback when it came to other parts of the business in terms of like actually trying to get it out there in front of customers. I use you know, like beta list and product hunt and all these other sites where you quote unquote launch a product, yeah. you know, essentially just put it out there in front of a big mass of people and just see how people responded. And from those first couple of months, we actually had about 400 users sign up. So then the next step was, okay, like let's try and make some money. <laughs> Yeah. So one of the cool things about you having done this all on Indie Hackers is you actually have a product page on Indie Hackers. And I'm scrolling down your timeline. You've got hundreds of posts on here. And I can see, you know, April 19th, 2017, you set up your landing page. June, you went full time on Cloud Campaign. In September, you basically first started charging. Uh, it was the first time you actually let people pay for Cloud Campaign. How much time after that did it take for you to actually get someone to agree to pay? I think we might have gotten one customer in that first month, but in terms of an actual, you know, number with some significance, it was a very, very long time. And I think that goes back to the what we're talking about earlier, which is I just was targeting the wrong people. I was really just trying to get anyone to pay for it. It wasn't it wasn't niched down enough to one particular target customer. And I think a good way to think about it, and at this point back in the day, I was thinking about it like, well, you know, I want to make sure it appeals to everyone, so then everyone can use it. But I think that's the wrong way to think about it. I think the way I think about it now is if you go and tell someone, right, hey, Corlin, I'm building this social media marketing tool for marketing agencies. 
what you want them to say is, oh, I know a marketing agency. Yeah, let me let me go refer you. Right. So like it needs to be specific enough that they think, oh yeah, like my, my buddy Jeff does that. Like let me let me connect you guys. Otherwise it's just, hey, we're building this tool for businesses. Like, okay, yeah, I know tons of businesses, but like, <laughs> why would I connect you? It's it's just too generic. Yeah, you have to sort of make it easier for your customers to spread what you're doing by giving them like a very concrete value proposition for who this is for and what they're going to get out of it. But obviously it's hard to figure that out up front because you don't actually know. You're renovating, you're building something new. And that process, I think, is one that a lot of founders never get out of. It's super easy to get stuck in that hunt for product market fit. What should I be building? Who's going to use it? How much are they going to pay? You can spend years just doing that and never figure out the answer. And I know you spent you know many months doing it. Mm-hmm. So when I look back at our early emails, I think I didn't want to use Cloud Campaign because social media marketing wasn't at the top of my to-do list. It was you know maybe 15th down the list. I had all these other things that I really wanted to work on, and I didn't even really have time to even try it. Like I think I signed up for Buffer, and I had not buffered any tweets whatsoever. So yep. I was like, I can't really try evaluating another tool. How many people were you talking to back then to try to sell Cloud Campaign to, and what was your technique for reaching out to them? At that point, I was talking to just a handful of people. It really wasn't enough. Um, just people that had interacted with the product or with me at some point previously. And to be honest, it was all the wrong people now that I know. Right. So like I think I missed kind of a step in the journey, which is doing customer discovery and figuring out who the product is actually for and really defining that. And that was right around that time actually when I realized it. And it was a post that Patrick McKenzie wrote, which was you know, find people that are used to paying for your product. And I think that exactly what you said, right? I tried selling the product to you and you're like, yeah, like social media is not important to me. I don't want to spend money on this right now. I'm using Buffer. It's free. It's great. And so read this post from Patrick McKenzie and I was like, okay, like let's go find people that are used to paying for it. And that's when I started talking to the enterprises, realized that they outsource to agencies and realized, okay, like this is the number one most important tool for an agency that does social media management. They run their entire business on this thing. Like this is the right target market to go after. And at that point, that's when I started going a lot deeper into having these customer interviews and just cold calling this list of there are about twelve thousand agencies on this list and starting alphabetically and just going down the line saying, you know, hey, I'm building this new tool. Like, what's your biggest problem right now with with marketing, with social media management? And it was also right around this time where I found a co-founder, which was great because as we kind of talked about, like I'm an engineer. My skill set is not sales. It's not getting on the phone talking to people. It's something I just wasn't comfortable with at the time. And so I maybe called the first 10 agencies that we talked to. My co-founder, Ross, called about 490 of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wow. And, and that's really where we like started then figuring out what the right product is, started seeing early sounds of product market fit, and actually started generating some revenues when we started having those conversations with our actual target customer. So there's a lot there to unpack the first question I have is, why didn't you quit? It's so easy when you're talking to the wrong customers, you're not giving you positive feedback, you built this thing that you're hopeful for, but then you suddenly you know, lose that optimism because you're not getting any sales and no one's saying yes. Uh, why not completely pivot, build something different? Yeah, I just felt, so I knew my savings was running out, one, and I, I felt it really had sunk, sunk cost fallacy. I mean, I felt like I had dedicated so much time to building the project I had today. I was like, I need to make this work. And then Another driving, a really big driving force for me is just fear of regret, right? If I look mm-hmm. back 10 years from now, like, am I going to regret that I didn't try hard enough or I didn't, you know, push hard enough with this one, this one product that I'm trying to sell? 
And if I go back to in like a cushy engineering job, like I'm always going to think, well, what if, what if I stuck with it? What if I tried this? What if I did that? And so I think that was really the driving force of like, you know, I, I think this can work. No one's really selling directly to these marketing agencies, although they're like a very large part of the market. Like let's, let's just push through this and like, let's see what happens. The second question I want to ask about, about your early days is about hiring a co-founder, because that's not a common thing that people do after they already get started by themselves. They think, okay, I'm the founder. I'm a solo founder. If I hire anybody, it's going to be an employee, but I'm definitely not going to bring on a late co-founder, which I think is an oversight because it's kind of cool to bring on a late co-founder. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're the one still in charge. You're sort of setting the direction, but you're bringing on somebody who ideally you don't have to pay a full-time salary like you would a normal employee, but also who is incentivized the same way that you are, who can sort of complement your weaknesses, and who actually has full responsibility for making this business a success and can wear a lot of hats. How do you evaluate the right person for that kind of role, though? I mean, it's nerve-wracking to give up a huge chunk of your business to, to someone who you haven't worked with. It's so hard. And I think there are ways of doing it that aren't as risky. So there are actually two different uh, two different friends I was talking to to become a co-founder. The first one, it just ended up not working out. And I think part of the reason why was just like a difference in risk tolerance. You know, he was a bit older, had a starting a family, has a mortgage he needs to pay for. Right. And we sort of had that conversation early on. And I think it's important to like have that conversation. So, you know, like, look, if we don't hit these benchmarks, it's just not going to work out. Mm-hmm. And so the way we structured our contract was kind of reflective of that. Right. So I didn't want to just say, here you get 30% of the company hopefully it works out and then it doesn't work out and you're you're kind of in the situation where you have a ton of debt equity and it makes everything else really hard and so the way we structured it is like look let's start off by giving you a little bit of equity cuz I want to compensate you for your time if we hit this benchmark and it seems like we're making progress and it's going to work out then you get more equity and if we hit this benchmark then you get even more equity and it's kind of like earning their way to become a co-founder and so that's the first situation that one ended up not working out the second one, it thankfully did work out and it, it was clear. So like initially the way we structured the deal was he didn't get quite as much equity. But after I'd say the first month and a half, it was pretty clear that it was going to work out and we were a good fit together. And so I was like, okay, like here, like here's, you know, the equity that you deserve mm-hmm. to make us more even partners and have more alignment. Cause that's a big thing. Like I think you mentioned like, why don't you just hire someone versus bringing on a co-founder I think alignment is super important and you're both striving towards this vision of making a really valuable company yeah. because you have, you know, you have some sweat in the game, some skin in the game to then actually see that through and make that happen rather than just trying to increase your salary or something that is a bit more short term. So now you're armed with a co-founder who's in the same sort of situation that you are. His skills complement yours. He's an expert at sales and talking to people. You could focus on what you do best and that's coding. And you have this huge list of marketing agencies who you're just going down and calling. How do you find a list like this, number one? And what do you say once you get on a phone call with somebody who's a potential customer? Yes, I mean, fortunately for us, this list was just public and very easy to find. I think it's because it's sort of like a directory, um, like white pages, right? Like these agencies want to be found by potential customers. And so they're actively putting their name out there with their phone number, their address, their email. Mm -hmm. And so it's easy to get that information, getting them to actually talk was a little bit more difficult. And this was something that was just through trial and error to figure out what worked. But what eventually worked for us was doing an agency spotlight. So we'd get on the phone with them and say, hey, we want to write an article about your agency. You know, we think it's great what you built and we think a lot of other folks can learn from it. Do you have 30 minutes to jump on the phone with us 
And we'll talk about, you know, what's the biggest problem that you're facing, which is what we ultimately want to learn. Right. So that was a bit selfish. But what's the biggest problem that you're facing? And like, how'd you get to where you are today? How many brands do you work with, et cetera, et cetera. And so that was pretty compelling for them because they're trying to get their name out there the same as any other business. And they're like, oh, like, sure. Like, you have how many people visiting your website? And we're like, eh, it's like a thousand. <laughs> like, it's not a big audience, but they're like, okay, it's fine. Like, it's 30 minutes of my time. Best case scenario, I get a couple customers from it. Worst case scenario, you know, there's another link that's pointing back to my website for SEO. And so we actually would write about one article a week doing these agency spotlights, just kind of transcribing our call into a blog article. That's super clever because usually if somebody reaches out to an agency, either they're a customer or they're somebody trying to sell them something. Very rarely is it somebody who's like, yeah, let me help you get the word out. You know, mm-hmm. let me help you do what you're trying to do. Even if you don't have a ton of traffic to your website, it's a pretty compelling offer. Like, why would an agency say no to that? It's just free marketing for them. And then you get to learn. And now you have a relationship that you can potentially turn into a paying customer. Yeah. Did any of these agencies end up signing up for a cloud campaign after you did your spotlight on them? Nope. <laughs> no. <laughs> so I think that's the downfall, right? Like if you go into the initial conversation and you're saying, "Hey, we have this really cool product that solves this problem for you." Then they're like, "Okay, we'll evaluate it as if we're buying the product." When we go into the conversation saying, "Hey, we want to learn from you and do this, write this article about you and it's going to be great." Mm-hmm. Then they're like, "Okay, like let's write the article." And then as soon as you try and, you know, shift the conversation to like and this is what we're building. <laughs> Do you want this? They're just like, uh, this isn't why I got on the phone for you with you. And so we eventually we realized that pretty quickly. And so we didn't even try selling most of the agencies. It was more of like, okay, let's just use this for feedback to inform our marketing and our product. And then let's try and sell other agencies in a more scalable way, which was advertising eventually. So yeah, there's so many different channels you can potentially sell through. If content marketing and cold outreach isn't working, you maybe try going to conferences, you maybe try ads, as you just mentioned. And at the same time, you're testing all these different channels, you're also tweaking your product to figure out what features resonate with customers, what actually works. And that's kind of what makes it challenging to find product market fit, is that you have these two moving targets at the same time that you're trying to align, not just one. Uh, what were some of the first successes you had after you know some of these failures? Yeah, I mean, so I think just to kind of pull out one of the the key points you mentioned there is trying to get everything to align correctly. And I think those initial conversations with those 500 agencies did that for us, right? Like it informed our product in terms of you ask them, what's your biggest pain point? And they tell you, and you're like, okay, we can build that in our product now. But also inform sales and marketing because you might mention something and they're like, oh yeah, that, that sounds awesome. And you're like, okay, like we need to put that in our, in our marketing efforts um, because that really resonates with this particular audience. Do you have any examples of, of something that you learned that actually changed how your product worked? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's quite a few, but a really big one, which is still fueling our growth today, is white labeling. So most of these agencies want to have our product branded with their logo and their subdomain, and they want to be able to show it to their clients as if they built it, because they can charge significantly more if that's the case. And so that was something that we got from very, very early feedback built it in like a couple hours and launched it. And that's like still one of our biggest uh, features that's driving growth today. Yeah, looking at your website, cloudcampaign.io, I see the sort of header text is, we help marketing agencies scale, onboard more social media clients and charge a higher retainer with a leaner team. I think that's the kind of statement that you could tell has been crafted as a result of talking to customers and figuring out exactly what will resonate. How many dissect that? You know, how did... 
obviously we help marketing agencies scale as a result of you figuring out who your best customer is. Mm -hmm. Um, What about onboarding more social media clients and charging a higher retainer and having a leaner team? Yeah, so we've tried to we try to figure out you know what does our product do right? Like it does a lot, obviously, but you're not going to say we do content approvals and we help you create content and schedule content and report on it. Like that's just very wordy, and that's also what everyone else does. So like, what makes us different? And thinking about it more, you know, we have a lot of automation built into our platform. We have a lot of streamlined workflows. And why does that matter? That makes the agency more efficient. Why do they want to be more efficient? They want to manage more clients. So it's like taking it kind of a few layers back and say, why does the business owner, who's ultimately who we're selling to, why why do they care and why do they want to sign up for a product? And it really comes down to they're trying to make more money and they're trying to you know, increase their, their bottom line. And so we can make them more efficient, which translates to onboard more clients with mm-hmm. a leaner team. At the same time, they want to make more money. So we would tell them, you know, you can charge a higher retainer and that comes through like the white labeled product that makes it look like their own and community management and content approvals, all these different features that allow them to charge more for their clients to their clients. So one of the interesting things about being a solo founder versus having a co-founder and having employees is as a solo founder, you pretty much have everything in your head. You know exactly what conversations you've had with customers. You know exactly what's going on in the code and your roadmap for developing certain things. The second you add other people into the mix, you have to communicate. You have to figure out, okay, well, what do you know? What do I know? And how do we reconcile those two things to make sure we're going in the same direction? It's especially a stark contrast if you're the developer founder, you're building the product, and your co-founder is the one talking to all the customers. Because you're trying to figure out what you should build, but all that information is sort of in your, your co-founder's head. Mm-hmm. How do the two of you work together to figure out what to build and translate the things that he was learning by talking to customers into the things that you were building? Yeah, and I think it's I think it's even more difficult because we're remote, or I should say I'm remote. Mm-hmm. So I'm in San Francisco, and then we have an office up in Portland, which is where the sales team is at. And so it's not as easy as just like looking over across the table and asking them, hey, what'd you hear on phone calls today with sales? And so we had to be pretty deliberate about setting up some structures in place that that allowed this open communication and that feedback loop. And you know, a big part of it is just staying in communication. So hopping on the phone a couple times a day, you know, being on Slack all the time. But we ended up uh, using just like a public Trello board that anytime a customer requests something, he's able to then throw it into the Trello board. Or anyone that's on our sales team can just throw it in the Trello board, saying, "Hey, this customer requested this." I can then go through once a week and say, "Oh, this is a good idea. Like, let's move it to you know coming soon or considering or whatever else." And then the other thing that's really cool about it is we put it out there for our customers to actually interact with. And so now we're at the point where customers, you know, weekly, if not sometimes daily, will then add new feature requests directly to the board. And that's extremely powerful because it makes them feel like they're contributing to the product and they're part of the team. And like they're helping you go from this, you know, fledgling startup to a growing business. Yeah. And they can tell their friends, like, oh, like I told them they need this feature and here it is. And so that's been just huge for us in terms of getting ambassadors and customer buy-in. Yeah, they're part of the story. Some of my favorite products to use are ones where I know the founder, it's a super small, responsive team, and I can make suggestions and like see them actually happen. Yeah. And I have a lot of trust. I'm like, oh, you know, this product will never be that bad because worst case scenario, if I don't like something, I can email them. Right. <laughs> uh, uh, and in your situation, you're in a pretty crowded market. You're not the first company to offer tools to social media marketing agencies or to help people grow their social media campaigns. And so I think being able to differentiate in any way that you can is super helpful. You know, I'm not super confident I can email a much more mature company and get them to change a feature because they have their whole roadmap out already. But you as a fledgling company could kind of use that as your advantage. 
what are some of the other things you did to stand out among the competition? Because I, I think it's it's both a blessing and a curse to be in an industry where there's tons of competitors already selling something similar to what you're doing. Yeah, so so niching down was obviously the biggest thing, right? So going after marketing agencies specifically, that was the, that was the largest one for sure. Another way to stand out for us was just really focusing on the features that matter the most to this particular audience. Like, so there are some co- competitors that have similar feature sets, but they're not actively advertising them because they're mostly selling to businesses, and then right. maybe some agencies will sign up as well because they're like, oh yeah, I'm familiar with whatever it might be, Sprinkler or Sprout Social. And so we're, we're directly advertising specifically to these agencies saying, hey, you can be more efficient, you can white label your product, you know, you, you can get more clients by using us. And I think it just stands out and resonates with them. And so all of our customers right now are inbound, actually. It's people requesting a demo saying, hey, I want to learn more about your tool and maybe sign up for it. And that's, that's just been huge for us is getting all that inbound interest. It's funny because this is exactly when your emails to me completely dried up. Like Cortland is not a, <laughs> a social media marketing agency. I'm not talking yep. to him anymore. But I think it's so powerful to be able to say who is your customer and who's not your customer. Because if you know exactly who is your customer, you can do what you're saying and build features that are specifically tailored to them and have language on your landing page that's specifically tailored and appealing to them. And yeah, maybe that means you're giving up some percentage of the market that you can't sell to anymore. But there's still a ton of agencies out there who have plenty of money who you can sell to. And now you're much better than the competition. So I think niching down, as often as it's talked about, it's probably still not talked about often enough as so many indie hackers start off by just targeting literally everybody. Who's my customer? Everybody who could use it. (laughs) <laughs> but I think you did such a good job narrowing it down. Yeah, and I think, yeah, I mean, this is the perfect example, right? Like, the space is so crowded. I remember, this is actually a super funny story, but I had the idea for about a week before I started, like, before I put up a landing page, and I was listening to the Indie Hacker podcast back then, and I think it was episode number 10. I don't know, what are we on right now? 132, this will be, I okay, think. So this is a while ago. It was episode number 10 with Laura Roeder of Meet mm-hmm. Edgar. Who some people might see as a competitor, but we're actually, you know, selling to very different markets. But anyway, she has a social media management tool as well. And I was listening to the episode and she starts talking about water bottles. I think you asked her a similar question. You're like, is this a crowded space? How do you think to go after it? Like, why, why weren't you more hesitant? She's like, look at your desk right now. How many different water bottles do you have? There's so many different brands of water bottles. Everyone has different preferences. Some appeal more to different groups. And so, you know, it, there, there is room for everyone to still thrive in within this market and it's funny and like because that was kind of the moment where i was like okay like let's do it like if she said there's enough room for everyone like all into that same market and we'll we'll figure out what our niche is and kind of carve our way through it it's so easy to have doubt as a sort of fledgling founder when you just have an idea but you're like other people are already doing this you know it's not that unique it's not that revolutionary should i really work on that and so I think her message really resonated with a lot of people who are like, oh, mm-hmm. just because other people are doing this doesn't mean I can't make it my own, make it unique, find my own niche, and figure out a way to make it work. Yeah, I mean, the other thing to note, too, is like, if you're bootstrapping a company, you don't need that many customers, right? Like, how much money do you actually need to be generating if it's just you or if it's you and one or two other people? Like, you don't need that much of the market. I think it's different if you're going VC-backed, and I think at that point you might need to find a bigger market that you can move into by either being vertically integrated and going after that or maybe finding like a whole net new market that hasn't yeah. really been explored yet. But you know, for if you're just trying to generate ten thousand dollars a month for yourself and have a nice little business, like there's no issue with going after a crowded space. And I think if you know, if nothing else, it actually is proof that there is a market that's willing to pay for it and there's customers. 
trying to educate a new market is super expensive and it's really hard to do. So why not just go after, you know, a group of customers that are already familiar with paying for it? Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And there's a laundry list of other advantages to choosing a niche. Uh, it's kind of a moat for one. These bigger companies who your competitors can't really afford to focus on super tiny niches because it mm-hmm. doesn't make any sense to them. They're trying to make a billion dollars. They don't want to go after a million dollar market. And so you don't really have that much competition. Uh, there's probably more than enough money in that market for you. And so you don't really need to go bigger, but you can also go bigger gradually. So if you start at a tiny niche and you work your way up and customers love you and you, you know, suddenly dominate social media marketing as, as a customer set. Well, now you've got a bunch of testimonials and a bunch of revenue and employees and a lot of power and brand and name recognition. And if you want to expand into a bigger niche or a different customer segment, it's much easier to do that now with all these advantages and just trying to do that right off the bat. So I think, you know, one of the issues people have is they say, well, I want to sell to everybody. Uh, and maybe you can eventually, but that's not where you should start. Yeah, no, I think that is a huge mistake that a lot of folks make is they look at these large companies that they admire today. Like, oh, look, they, they sell to 10 different verticals. Like, I must do the same thing. But if you actually kind of dig back and go back to their origin story, a lot of them started by just focusing on one small niche and then really owning that space and then expanding the product to other verticals or going really deep with that niche and like doing a land and expand model, which is what we're doing. So, you know, we're, we're trying to gain trust and build up this large customer base of marketing agencies and freelancers with our existing product, our beachhead market. But the goal is to then expand these other offerings. Obviously, social media marketing is not the only problem that these freelancers and marketing agencies have. And so we want to be kind of the one-stop shop where they can come in, they can build their clients, they can prospect new clients, they can do everything from here. It's, you know, almost like a good example would be Shopify, how they democratize e-commerce. As long as you have a credit card, you can start an online store. As long as you have a credit card, you can be a freelancer and start up your your digital marketing agency. Very cool. So at this point in your story, your sales machine is rolling. You've gone from spending many months trying to figure out product market fit to the point where now suddenly you have customers and there's rays of hope and you've got a co-founder working with you. How did it feel to, to make that transition? What kind of changes in your mind as a founder when you're trying to figure out what to build versus when you know what to build and now it's just time to execute? It's exciting at times. I think at other times it's also... I'm not going to say painful. Painful is a bit of a stretch, but you know, I think like one of the reasons why as an engineer you start a company is because you like to build something that is really innovative and fun and cool and whatever else, something that really excites you. A lot of times you're writing boiler boilerplate code and yeah. you're just building what the customer wants and what the customer wants is what they saw from a competitor and they're like, "Oh, competitor X has this. We're used to using this. We need this within your tool." And so that stuff like isn't as fun, but I think I just keep thinking back to, well, this customer is paying for me to work on this product. So that's like that's actually really cool. The fact that I get to work on my own product and we're making enough revenue that our customers are actually paying our salaries, which is pretty cool. Yeah. What about the financial perspective of, of going from your bank account dwindling every month to suddenly you're actually able to save money and spend money hiring? How did that transition feel? It felt great, honestly. I mean, I'm still at a point where I was making a good bit more money at my engineering job than I am now. But it's really cool to be able to create these job opportunities for other people. right? So right now, it's it's just three of us full-time, and we have three interns. Um, we're in the process of hiring a fourth full-time employee right now. And so it's really exciting like giving these folks the opportunity to join an early-stage startup and pay them 
better than myself, but that's fine. You know, like <laughs> it's just, it's just, I don't know. It's, it's really cool. It's like cool being able to create new jobs for people and like see them have the same passion that we do and seeing our culture develop in that way too. How do you hire somebody good at an early stage startup? Because when you're hiring early employees, you kind of want them to wear a lot of hats. They've got a lot of responsibilities. Your company's not this finely oiled machine where everything's sort of, you know, in its place. People have to figure out how to put things together and work with you. How do you hire someone who's actually well suited to that kind of role? It's difficult. We've definitely made bad hires in the past and we've tried to fire quickly. Most recently, we hired an account executive named Andrew and he's just absolutely killer. He's doing a great job. And I think what we've noticed from his interview process versus others is he came from a startup. So he had been at an early stage startup that got acquired and grew. And so he kind of understand the role of wearing different hats and having that responsibility. I also think there's just different skill sets that are well suited for startups. So someone that's a self-starter, right? There's not gonna be a lot of handholding. You need them to be motivated to get in there every day and do their work and work autonomously. Someone that's organized and can stay on top of the tasks without you constantly hounding them for it. So there's obviously, I don't know, there's obviously a lot of soft skills as well. And I think, I think it's hard, right? I don't think I'm also, I also think I'm not the right person to give advice on this because we've only hired one person well. Um, <laughs> maybe talk to me in a couple of years and I might have some better advice. Uh, what are some things you would say not to do? Because if you've made some mistakes, I'm, I'm sure you've got some theories in your head for, you know, why those mistakes were made. Yeah. I mean, I follow your gut. So it's, it's so hard. Like you might interview someone and your gut's telling you like, this probably isn't the right fit. And you're just like, yeah, but I think they'll figure it out. Like we can train that out of them. We'll make it work. And that's <laughs> just not a little right optimist on your, on your shoulder a little bit. Yeah. And hiring friends is hard too. Like you just always need to be comfortable firing someone if you hire them. And so unless you feel really, really confident about them and how they'll fit in the role, I would typically recommend not hiring friends. So one of the challenges, and I brought this up briefly earlier, is that you're trying to grow and sometimes the things that work for growth stop working. And sometimes you need to discover a completely new channel. Earlier on, you tried all sorts of different things and you mentioned that ads really worked for you. And I know you've increased your ad spend tremendously since mm-hmm. you first started, so it seems like it's continuing to work. How did you hit on ads as a channel for growth and what are some of the things you did in the early days? So we tried all sorts of things, right? Initially, we didn't have much money, so it was whatever is cheapest to get our name out there. So that was like posting on forums and attending free events that were we think our customers would be at. Eventually, we started, as you mentioned, running some ads, so like Bing and Google SEM, and then various social media ads. Um, we started sponsoring trade shows, and we just tried a, a slew of different things with as little money as possible, which is hard because you can't really get significant like statistical results unless you spend a good amount of money, but you obviously have a tight budget. And so you're just trying to see not necessarily like, is this the wrong channel, but can I get some sort of result from a little bit of money? And so those are some of the things that we tried. And even with the social media ads, which is where all of our customers are coming from today is from social media. But even with some of the early ads, we didn't have any success, right? We throw it out there and it would fail for whatever reason. But I think what's important is just learning why it potentially didn't work. Either the messaging's wrong, the audience is wrong, or you're sending them to the wrong spot. Like it's the wrong objective. And so that's what we eventually realized is like a kind of a mixture of those. Once we got the right objective and the right copy, which, you know, again, the copy we learned from talking to all these potential customers over all those phone calls and the audience we already knew from day one, or not day one, but you know, once we started running ads, 
But once we got those all three kind of lined up, then we started seeing just significant results and it's continued to deliver uh, tremendously for us even up till today. One of the difficult things I think about this search for how do you grow your company is that uh, you kind of have two choices. You can go broad or you can go deep. So I've been practicing chess a lot recently and trying to learn. And my chess coach, I complain to him about this all the time. He's like, oh, look at the different moves. And it's like, well, there's like 30 different moves that I can make. But then for each one of those, I can go, you know, 10 moves deep and try to analyze what's going on. And it's really hard to figure out, should I go deep on this move if I haven't even tried looking at another one? And it's kind of analogous to figuring out growth channels, right? There's 10, 15 different channels you can try. But then if you try one, it's not guaranteed to work. Ads didn't work for you up front. So it's like, mm-hmm. okay, well, do we keep investing in ads and try to figure out why it's not working? Or we just try something else and hope it works, you know, first or second try. How'd you decide to to go deep on ads rather than just giving up and trying some other thing? Yeah. I mean, I think when we first tried ads, it didn't work. So then we kept trying other things, but we never really checked anything off the list, right? It wasn't like this doesn't work. It's like this didn't work this time. We'll try it again later. And it's kind of a breadth first search, so cycle through all the possible options and then kind of go back to the start. And it's like, all right, well, nothing worked. <laughs> we know one of these should work, so let's try again. Then the nice thing with with social media ads, there's so many different variations you can try. And so I think initially we had like the most success with Google AdWords and with Facebook and Instagram ads. Like it wasn't successful, but we had the most relative success there compared to other things that we tried. And so the thought was like, yeah, like we know other people in the same space have had success here. We know our customers are, are on this channel. Like, let's just try running a few different tests and let's go a bit deeper on it. I think, yeah, the main reason why we we chose social media is because we knew our customers were there and we saw a little bit of success from early on. So it's like, in theory, this should work. So we just need to figure out how to make it work. Yeah, exactly. How much money are you guys spending on ads nowadays? So we just ramped up our ad spend to $10,000 a month, which I know sounds like a lot, but our ROI is, is great. So our LTV right now, our lifetime value is about $4,400. And we acquire a customer for $450 fully burdened. So counting like the sales salary and everything. So you basically have built a machine where you can pour as much money as you want into ads. And you're pretty confident that you're going to get a profitable customer at the end of it. For the time being, like I, I'm sure it's going to change and we've seen some shifts within our ad results, um, like our cost per lead starting to go up. And fortunately, we have an account manager at Facebook that we work with. And so like, hey, this isn't good. Like it's rising pretty rapidly and it's not sustainable for us. Like, what can we try? And they have a very clear answer. They're like, oh, your ad is stale. Like you need to refresh your ad and put a new creative. Facebook's charging you extra because it's so old. Change that went back straight to normal how it is today. But yeah, I'm sure I'm sure there's a ceiling to it. We'll just see how far we can go with this one ad channel. If somebody's listening into this and they're thinking about getting started with Facebook ads, what would your advice to them be based on what you've learned going from you know spending zero dollars a month on ads to ten grand a month on ads? Run a bunch of different tests. I, I mean, if you're using Facebook, Facebook is pretty good about self-optimizing. So if you give it a bunch of different options, so you can have like one ad set that has say ten different creatives and ten different placement spots. Facebook will then figure out where it's getting the best results from and start to optimize that itself, which makes it really nice. I would say the other thing is just kind of go through the process yourself as if you were that person that's scrolling through social media and you see the ad. You know, what does that process look like? Are you clicking on the ad and is that taking you to the website? And then, like, what's ultimately the goal, right? Like, it's really hard to just drive someone straight to sign up and have them put in their credit card from a Facebook ad. 
But for us, what works really well is getting someone to request a demo. It fills in that whole like education piece of why do they actually need this product? What is the product? All they have to do is go on Facebook, say, yeah, this looks interesting. Like maybe I want to learn more about it. They put in their info and then we can actually get the opportunity to get on the phone with them and sell them. So let's let's step back for a second and look at this overall picture of you running this business. Would you say that you're you're having fun? Is this what you expected it would be and do you enjoy being a founder? Yeah, I'd say now I am. I wouldn't say that was always the case. <laughs> <laughs> when wasn't it the case and why not? Oh man, I would say the first six months were fun. It was really liberating uh, just being able to work 24 hours on a startup, right? Like you don't sleep, you just keep working. And that was super fun. Um, it's something I just like has always wanted to do. I think around that six month mark was really tough just because it's like, okay, something's not working. We're not, we don't have any customers. We're not generating revenue. Like I'm having fun building it, but that's not going to pay my bills. <laughs> so I think that's when it started kind of dawning on me. That's like, all right, well, maybe this isn't as fun as I was expecting it would be. And I'd say that probably continued through until two to three months ago. Yeah, I think there's obviously a lot of fun in doing the tasks that you like doing, coding, and, and the liberation of not having to work for the man, being able to set your own schedule, work on your passion. But there's also a lot of fun in making money, <laughs> having a business that actually works. Is yep. that what, what sort of kickstarted the more recent spurt of, of enjoying what you're doing? That and also seeing the bigger vision. It's something I, I struggled with a bit. I, I think we kind of flopped around. It's like, do we want to build a big business? Do you want to stay bootstrapped? Like, you know, what, what, what do we want to be when we grow up, essentially, yeah. <laughs> in terms of the business? And I think we have a lot more clarity on it now. We've put a lot of thought into it and have been much more deliberate in terms of planning. And I think that's just been super exciting. I think it's gotten to like a really, really fun spot. What is the vision that you guys ended up with? So building the, the multi-point solution that we kind of talked about being the all-in-one platform for marketing agencies and freelancers that are either just trying to get started or they're trying to grow their book of business. And how do you end up with a vision like that? Because there's so many different things you can do, so many options and roads you can travel down. What kind of factors go into deciding what you want to be when you grow up? One part's the market, right? So like we talked about, the market is just extremely crowded. And so if we try to do what everyone else is doing, which is expanding from marketing agencies to then selling direct to brands and selling to enterprises, I just think it's too crowded and there's not enough space for us. Uh, but I think the other part of it is just listening really closely to our customers. A lot of them are saying, you know, hey, you guys are killing on social media. I love your tool, but like any chance you guys could help us with billing or help us with email marketing or whatever else. And I think there's a, a pretty large opportunity there. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's a fun, honestly, it's a fun customer segment to serve because it's small business owners. They're trying to earn back their day. It's really relatable. And so I think going deep in that and just better serving them is pretty exciting. I was reading a little bit of uh, Jason Lemkin, the founder of Saster, which is a conference and also a community and publication for people running SaaS businesses. And he had a good post about you know, what's the hardest thing of running a SaaS business. And it actually wasn't just one thing. It kind of changed depending on the phase that you're in. So uh, up until the point where you're making about $10,000 a month in revenue, he said the hardest thing is just how little money you make from each customer. Mm -hmm. Put so much effort into a sale, you're calling people, you're on the phone, you're on email, you're adding features, and then they end up paying you something like 10 or 15 bucks a month. You're like, is it really <laughs> worth it? Uh, would you agree with him that that was the hardest part of growing your business You know, in the first 10K a month? Absolutely. Yeah. It makes your time just feel worthless. You know, like you spend so much time working on this new feature that this customer is like, 
given you probably shouldn't do this unless it's a feature that everyone wants, but maybe in the early days, the customer's like, look, I would sign up if you had feature XYZ or whatever. And you're like, oh man, I could build it. I'm an engineer. I'll build it tonight. <laughs> like, yeah. And you just spend hours building this new feature to get whatever, $100 a month. And you're like, this is not worth my time. <laughs> like, why did I leave my job? I was making so much more money and I didn't have to work 24 hours a day. Yeah. Yeah, when I started Indie Hackers, which was never a SaaS business, I didn't really have that problem because I was selling ads. Mm-hmm. So people would just pay me five thousand dollars for like an hour long phone call for ads, and so it felt like you know very much worth my time. Yeah. But on the flip side, before I started selling ads, I was constantly comparing to my hourly contracting rate as a developer. It's like you know I'm making this many hundreds of dollars an hour as a developer, whereas this week I just worked eighty hours on Indie Hackers, I got paid zero. Yeah. So it's really hard early on to not sort of do that mental calculus and wonder you know if you're not dumb <laughs> for giving up your job and starting a company. I think that's why it's important to do something that you enjoy, right? And like folks always say this is get into a business that you're going to enjoy because those yeah. early days are tough. You're, you're definitely not making much money and you're having long nights and customers are complaining about things and you're stressed out the whole time. And you're just like, why am I doing this? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is there anything you can actively do after you've already started your business and you actually have paying customers in a de- uh, sort of a, traje- a trajectory to modify your business and make it something that you enjoy more? Yeah, I think there's a lot of things you can do. I mean, I try to be better about planning my day at this point. So I really try and focus on parts of the business that I like doing. And then not necessarily neglecting the parts that I don't like, but maybe delegating those out to other folks or hiring for them. And so I think you can really build a business, even you know, no matter how far along you are, you can start shifting the business to be more enjoyable and really just spend your time doing what you want. I think it's important to be deliberate and just make a list. So what I did is I made a list and said, you know, these are the things that make me happy at the end of the day. Like if I build something, I'm really happy. If I get recognition for something, I'm really happy, whatever it might be. And so make that list and then figure out how you can structure your day around that list to make sure you're at least doing one thing per day that makes you happy and makes you enjoy building the business. I love that approach because it's so deliberate and it's very easy to fall into like a habit or a cycle or a pattern where you're just carried forward by momentum and you're just doing whatever you did yesterday. Uh, but if you're a little bit more deliberate about what you want, what makes you happy, then you can actively rearrange your day and your tasks and, and, and make sure you do those things. I should probably have a list like that <laughs> for indie hackers because there's definitely lots of stuff I don't like doing, lots of things I do like doing. And it's it's pretty liberating to realize that you're the boss and you could therefore decide what your day is going to look like and no one else can really tell you what to do. Yeah, it doesn't always feel like it early on. I think that's the hard part is like when you're not generating enough revenue to really hire other people you are wearing every hat and you really have to do every single thing you can to please your customers and get more customers. But I think as the business starts growing, you can hire more people. It's just a bit more liberating. So what do you think the future looks like? You sort of laid out your vision for Cloud Campaign, but you're also going to be raising money. That's a really big decision to make. That might change the entire nature of how your business grows, what's expected of you, and the direction you're going in. Where do you kind of hope things end up for you? And not just as a business, but also personally as a founder. Yeah, it's it's a very big question, Corlin. You're making it hard on me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think a big thing is just building a culture and an office that I really enjoy working in. So putting good people around us, people that believe in the mission, people that are excited to go to work every day and work on the problem that we're doing. Yeah, I mean, ideally, ideally in terms of like where the business is at, you know, we're we're solving this problem for this rapidly expanding industry. So there's about nine point one. 2 million freelancers that currently offer marketing or creative services, which is massive. That's crazy. 
And I think it's somewhat of an overlooked industry and the gig economy is just growing. And so I think if we can be that that solution, that one-stop shop that just makes it that much easier for them, uh, I think that'd be really compelling. And it's almost in some ways similar to Stripe's mentality, right? Like Stripe is trying to make it easier to start a business, no matter where you are in the world. And I, I think it'd be really cool if eventually one day we could be something similar, but very specific to you know freelancers that are trying to start up a marketing agency. Well, listen, Ryan, it's been cool watching your journey and to watch also your ambition expand from, you know, I want to be an indie hacker to, you know, I want to be one of the leading platforms for marketing agencies. Uh, there's a ton of people listening in who are basically where you were two, two and a half years ago. What's your advice for somebody who's just considering becoming a founder or someone who's just started? So it's Tim Ferriss advice and it suited me well so far, which is just in time, not just in case. Right. So don't like go learn some new framework or go set up Docker to like auto deploy some servers if you have two users. Like there's no point. Really, like you're, you're very, very limited in your time when you're starting a company, especially if you're bootstrapped and don't really have anyone else to help you. So my advice is just focus on things kind of as they come up. Like if you have to stay up till two in the morning the night before to get something finished for a meeting the next day, do it. Like that's, I think the best way to do it. Otherwise, you're just wasting so much time on effort that will never get used. I love that advice because it also means that you need to learn on the job, and you don't really want to spend, you know, a ton of months or years reading in advance how to start a startup or how to get, you know, a business <laughs> off the ground. You really need to, need to try it out, and you're going to learn more by doing than you will by by reading. You'll retain so much of it more too, like if you're actually in the moment and like you're reading a book, right? And they reference something, you're like, oh yeah, like I. I I went through that last month. Like yeah. now you actually remember it and you'll know like how to fix it or how it pertains to you. You actually have real experience to sort of to hang this knowledge on rather than just hoping it sticks in your memory for no real reason. Yep. Ryan, thank you so much for coming on the Indie Hackers podcast. It's been my pleasure having you. Can you let listeners know where they can go to learn more about what you're up to with Cloud Campaign and what's going on in your personal life as well if you share that sort of thing online? Of course. Thanks for having me. And yeah, I mean, so I blog on Medium if you want to keep up with me personally. Um, I'm also on Twitter at underscore Ryan Bourne. And then if you want to get in touch, you can email me directly at rborn at cloudcampaign.io. And then you can, uh, yeah, you can visit our website, which is cloudcampaign.io to see what we're up to. If you want to sign up for trial, we're also hiring too. You'll, you'll see the link on the website. All right. Thanks so much, Ryan. Thanks for having me. Listeners, if you enjoyed hearing from Ryan, I would love it if you reached out to him and let him know. He is at underscore Ryan Bourne on Twitter. So if you learned anything or appreciated hearing a story, take a second and say thanks. I'm also now releasing a weekly newsletter for the podcast. So if you go to ndhackers.com slash podcast, you can subscribe and get my thoughts and notes on each new episode as it comes out. Once again, that's ndhackers.com slash podcast. Thanks, and I will see you next time. Mm-hmm.